Hi, welcome to Access to Justice. I'm your host, Evan Clark, and I'm here with my co-host, Heather Malarek. Heather, how are you today? I'm well, Evan, thank you. How are you doing? I think you're a liar because we were talking before and um, you said something a little bit different. I'm just not going to let you get away with just saying you're well. <laughs> okay, I admit it. I did say I'm a little loopy. I'm having a little bout of insomnia, which I haven't had for a while. And the lack of sleep has got me um, a little giddy this afternoon. Nice. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm doing okay. Um, not particularly giddy or loopy, but also just kind of, I don't know. It's like, uh, I've been more energetic, <laughs> but there you have it. Okay. All right. <laughs> so we're also joined, <laughs> also joining us loopy and uh, mediocrely energetic is our special guest, Kim McDonald of McDonald Advisory. And as you may know, Kim is a financial advisor and insurance advisor with Raymond James Limited. Kim, how are you? Well, I am also a little tired. However, I started the day off on the right foot. I had a meeting this morning and it was suggested to meet at Crumb Coffee, which is an amazing local female-owned coffee shop in Edmonton, but it was busy. So we redirected to Ricky's Grill. And I'll tell you what, I ordered the hash browns with the chorizo, and it was a delight. There was like a mound of cheese and uh, chorizo and carbohydrates in this mountain. Um, and it really... Really made me happy. I think it's a great way to start off the day with a full breakfast. <laughs> was that sorry? Was that the breakfast bowl? No, it was just the side. I got the side item with with a plate of <laughs> sausages, and it was, I never. I always eat oatmeal for breakfast, and I was just like, I I, I strayed off course, and I'm really happy about it. I haven't, been, I haven't. I'm glad. I haven't been to Ricky's in a while, but I used to. Uh, I used to frequent it when I was installing tile in Nanaimo. We'd go there sometimes for lunch and get like the, they had this really killer barbecue breakfast bowl. But I don't know if they have it anymore. So nice, well done, Kim. Okay, uh, and we are joined today by uh, our first tandem of guests. This is a first for us. And it's Christine Shepard and Kelly Smith of Smith and Little. So that's a little, um, uh, what's the word? Misleading because, well, I'll, I'll clear up the confusion. Christine's maiden name is Little, hence the Smith and Little, but now she's Shepherd. Is that right, Christine? That's right, yeah. <laughs> it's a, an homage to my maiden name, yeah. <laughs> nice. Throwback to your parents. Correct. <laughs> nice. So I've got, we've got a nice little blurb here that I, that I can read about you guys, or we can have you just introduce yourselves. Either one I'm happy with doing. What do you think? I mean, I'm happy if you want to read as much or as little as that, as you would like. And I'll, then... re I'll read the whole thing. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Christine and Kelly are the founding partners at Smith and Little, as I said, they're a boutique firm offering family law services, but I think they also do a little more than just family law. I think Kelly, you were telling me you guys also do uh, general civil litigation as well. A little bit, um, primarily focused in family. Okay. 
They're both passionate about doing law differently and rethinking the way that law firms deliver services to clients. They strive to be known for the excellence of their work while remaining down to earth and approachable. They take team all matters to capitalize on their individual strengths. Christine appreciates that family law encompasses many complicated issues and clients will experience fear, anger, sadness, and many other emotions as they navigate a separation, making the process stressful, even for former spouses that get along. And she views her job as ensuring that her clients completely understand the legal issues at play, which will reduce the amount of fear and stress so that they can make decisions with confidence. And Kelly is a talented litigator and spends a lot of her time preparing for an attending court. She enjoys the creativity involved in problem solving complex legal issues and thinking out of the box to assist their clients. And um, yeah, well educated, both of you. So welcome. There's a couple things out of that, that you mentioned there, which is, you know, the blurb from your website, I think, but there's a couple things in there that I really like, and we're, I know we're going to talk about. So welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you Good for being here. So you guys are in different locations. Yes, we are. Kelly's in our downtown office and uh, I'm at my home office. Nice. I don't know if Evan intentionally, I think he skipped over the fact that you're a Calgary firm in the introduction. And it may be just because we're from Edmonton. So it's the rivalry. So you might be trying not to highlight that. <laughs> is that a bit of the Calgary downtown that we can see through your window, Kelly? Uh, it is. Um, I've got the blinds down because I take these Zooms in the afternoon and I find it blinds people. So I have to put the blinds down, but we have quite a nice view of some, uh, some river view, a little bit of mountain view. And uh, yeah, and Christine's office overlooks the courthouse. She likes to, to look at it and not go there, she says. <laughs> she lets me go there. So. Nice. Just remind uh, myself, I don't want to go there. Well, my first question actually has to do with your introduction, which is tag teaming files. I find that super fascinating. So can you tell me a little bit more about how you do that? Sure. So I guess this idea was born out of how we worked previously. Um, before we formed our firm, we were working side by side as individual sole practitioners. And we would often, you know, babysit each other's practices if one of us were going away or something. And of course, just being in a small office together, we ended up talking about a lot of our files. And it was in those conversations and starting to talk about what became Smith and Little. Uh, we were talking about who liked what better, right? What are we best at? What do we enjoy about the job? And brainstorming, how do we make that a thing, right? Why do we have to be everything to everyone? Because at the end of the day, we decided it's really hard for lawyers to be excellent in mediation and, uh, you know, in litigation and all these other aspects of family law that you're expected to be. And we just acknowledge like there's parts of the job that we like and there's parts that we don't. And so for me, you know, I really enjoy talking to clients, learning their stories, uh, kind of doing the nicer side, I call it. Like I like to go to their mediations and doing their agreements and things like that. And Kelly loves the litigation side of things, right? Um, that's where she's strong and she doesn't mind going to have, you know, parenting disagreements and litigating, you know, mobility trials and things like that. Right. So, um, it was really born out of that. So I do more of the solicitor side of things, if you want to call it that. And Kelly is our barrister. Oh, interesting. 
She's the mean one then, if you're the nice one. No. <laughs> I'm a very nice I person. She's a very nice person. She's <laughs> just a very talented litigator. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's really interesting though. So you work on the same files together and, um, mm-hmm. oh. Yeah, so I do much of the, you know, most of the, the client management in the sense that uh, I monitor the, the daily communications and things like that. I'll, you know, do most of the negotiations with other lawyers and, and that sort of thing. And yeah, if things go sideways, then you know, Kelly takes over. And, you know, I think it goes um, a bit beyond that because we like to tell our clients, you know, you get two for the price of one here. So one thing that's good for our clients is if one of us is on vacation or whatever, they don't really need to worry about who they're sending emails to. You know, we share an email box, we share a phone number, all those sorts of things. Um, So we manage that internally, you know, and we'll get back to you in the most efficient way possible. Um, so, you know, right now, Christine has been on a mat leave. So I've obviously been doing all the tasks for all the clients and that's fine. Um, and then beyond that, um, Christine and I strategize all the files. And I think that's a key piece of what a lawyer does that is maybe underappreciated in a traditional billing model, let's say, um, is we sit around and we talk about what should we do next for this client. And we both are doing that together usually on a daily basis, quite honestly. So you're getting those two lawyers who both know exactly what's going on in the file all the time. Um, The other piece of that, and what's really key to us working together is we really memo everything. So every time we have a meeting or talk to a client or go to court or whatever we do, we have extensive memos on our file. And the other one reads it as soon as it's typed up and prepared. And that's how we're always on top of what's going on. So I think in early days of our practice, it is unusual. Um, there were maybe some other opposing lawyers who tried to maybe take advantage of this, right? And say, oh, well, Christine told me this and that. And I say, no, I know exactly what she told you, right? Because <laughs> I've got the notes right in front of me and they're really detailed. Um, but I think, you know, from the litigation perspective and probably from Christine's perspective of the, the tasks she does as well, it helps to have that disconnect actually. So, you know, family law can be very emotional. And if I have to go into court and litigate something, I actually have that layer of disconnect from the client and their emotions because Christine will meet with them, have the emotional discussion um, and give it to me as a lawyer um, in, you know, terms of legal issues. And then I can go and litigate that piece. And I have that disconnect and it allows me to do a better job, I think, for the client. Yeah, that's that's something that uh, I, the more I thought about it, the more I, I hope people like your clients and potential clients can really appreciate what that means because I think it's easy to just, I don't know, to not quite understand what that means. So you strategize together on all the files. Like I I have lawyers that I turn to and, and pick their brain from time to time. I find great value in that, but you guys get to do that on every single file. So it really, like you jokingly say it's two for the price of one, but I say it actually is two for the price of one. I think that's, that can't be like overstated how much value that your clients get from that without realizing it. Yeah. And I mean, we've practiced together for a long time at this point, but at the same time, we do have very different backgrounds and different perspectives on things. And and I can tell you that uh, I don't think we fight about anything in that sense, but we have active discussions sometimes um, about what might be best A or B and that sort of thing. And, and they're quite, you know, detailed discussions, I guess, where we get into that. And really um, that's how we practice though. We, we like to drive the file and drive the strategy and, the litigation plan, et cetera. And, you know, really think from the beginning, what's going to make sense to get to the end here. We don't, 
like those files that go around in circles and aren't really accomplishing anything. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important from the beginning to figure out where you're trying to go and how you're going to get there. And then Mm -hmm. it's just a matter of following the plan. From the non-lawyer perspective, I'm trying to decipher how uncommon this arrangement is. Oh, super. Uh, super. So this is the the traditional British system, actually. Uh But uh, nobody in Canada does it that I know of. Um, But this is how they run it in the UK to this day. So barristers work on their own in their own practice. I mean, they have colleagues um, and then solicitors have their own offices. And so generally the solicitors would, you know, bring in the clients, work on the file, get it ready for trial, that sort of thing. And then they go and they hire a barrister and they say, here's your pile of files. Here's, you know, the details of what's going on. Go present this to the court. So it's kind of two different professions. And here in Canada, you know, we call all lawyers, barristers and solicitors. And um, especially in family law, I think we're expected to be everything to everyone, as Christine was saying, because family law is, it's a very unique area of law where you have to be a jack of all trades. So you have to have some understanding of tax law, corporate law, criminal law, all these things intersect with what our clients are going through. And uh, I was talking to Evan earlier, you know, it's very dangerous, I think, to walk around and have no concept of being able to identify a tax problem. So, you know, what we do often is in our practice, we, we kind of see ourselves as a quarterback for some of these complicated files. Um, we're not going to give clients tax advice, but we're going to want to be confident that we can identify a potential tax problem and tell them, okay, you need a tax lawyer. And if you don't have one, I'm going to help you get one and tell you who you should hire. And then I'm going to, or usually Christine, is going to listen to the tax lawyer, <laughs> figure out what they're saying, and then translate it to you, the family law client. So um, it's a very interesting area of law where actually... Uh, you have to have a very wide knowledge base to at least be able to flag issues. Yeah. I I com- oh, sorry. No, you go ahead, Heather. I was going to say, I often compare it to being sort of a general practitioner in medicine that you need to know when a referral to <laughs> the specialist is appropriate. And like you said, like you may not be treating that condition, but you need to know when um, something's an issue and when to to get some more help and get those referrals in place. Yeah. The only to answer your question, Kim, the only thing I can think of where you might see something similar here in Canada is perhaps at like a large firm when they're working on with, for like a large corporate client, like, you know, Bell Canada's lawyers, they probably have a team approach somewhat, but I think for, especially for family law, I think that's pretty unique. Why is that then? I know like in the financial services, we were, we were like lone wolves for a long period of time, like decades and decades. And then we had a shift to forming teams because we couldn't be an expert in everything. And I'm hearing a lot of, you know, crossover in terms of verbiage here. How come more family lawyers aren't following this model? It sounds amazing. Well, I think it comes down to like, this is all related to the way that they bill right? Like they can do the team approach because of the way that they built. If you're doing a billable hour, now you're like, okay, we're going to talk about this file together. How are we billing for this? Uh, do I bill my hourly rate or like, do I get half? Like, mm. what do, how do we do that? Or do, are you billing double then or what <laughs> happens? Are so. going to pay both our hourly rates for this uh-huh. half hour? And, and so it, it, it's not that it's impossible. Of course it's possible. But the, the hourly, the billable hour, I think, disincentivizes a lot of things. 
to the client's detriment. I think that's one example. I don't know. What do you guys think, Christine and Kelly? Like, why do you think other people don't do it? Do you think it's just the billing model that allows you to do that or what? Yes. I have a few thoughts on that and I'm sure Kelly does too, but I'll jump in first. Um, you know, it's like you said, right. With the, the obvious problem is clients don't want to see, you know, lawyer A and lawyer B talked for an hour and now they're both billing me their $400 an hour rate, right? Like that, that one hour cost me $800 and I can't see what you did for me, but you know, really that's probably a huge, huge benefit to the client. Like I can tell you when Kelly and I sit down and we have those, you know, it can be a few minutes long. It can be hours long. Like we've had these debates back and forth for, you know, sometimes up to a day on a single file to figure out the litigation plan. And we go like, that is going to have huge benefits for this client. Right. And it will save them piles of money because we just figured out their life, you know, but we can't show them that in a real way. Right. So it's hard to justify, I guess that $800 for talking for an hour, but it's well worth it. Usually, um, is one issue, but I think kind of the larger problem is lawyers in my experience tend to be very risk averse and, you know, they're, they're taught, you know, you, you're a lawyer, you have your client, you do A to B to C, and yes, sometimes you can reach out to a mentor or um, have a junior help you with your research or whatever the case may be. But at the end of the day, that's your file. These are your calls and you have to be the one to take it from to the finish line. And, you know, I guess the, the feedback we've gotten is kind of like, oh, that's interesting. But nobody has ever said like, oh, I, I want to do that. Right. Some of them go, oh, I wish I had a Kelly or I wish I had a Christine in my office. But that's kind of as far as it goes. And nobody, I don't, as far as I know, has actually taken the next step of going, how do I how do I find a Kelly or Christine to match my skills? Right. So I don't know, Kelly, if you have other thoughts on that, too. But yeah, I mean, I think it is very it's not easy to find the right partner <laughs> where it matches together, right? So, um, I mean, we talk generally client-facing what the two of us do, but on the back end, you know, we also split the duties of running a firm. And, you know, I can tell you, Christine does not enjoy trust accounting. So, um, you know, in my background, I was a bank teller for a number of years and things like that. So um, I do all our bookkeeping and, and things like that. Um, so you have to be able to find that right person. I mean, obviously we work together very, very closely too. So it's like a marriage and that has its own challenges. And, you know, any law partner or business partner, you have those challenges, I think, of, of being with them all the time. But I think in this model, especially so, we, I'm sure we spend more time together than the average law partners. So I think that is a challenge to this model for sure. Um, and I think if you go back to sort of the British system, it's similar to what we do, but there isn't that symbiotic relationship between the barrister and solicitor like we have, right? They're not strategizing the files together. They're just passing off the file and the brief. And it's really, you know, take it and apply your litigation skills to this. So uh, what we do goes far beyond that for sure. Um, so yeah, I, like Christine says, I haven't met people that we've talked to about it who have said, oh, great, let, sign me up to, to be my own half a partnership or whatever, but uh, we're certainly open to talking to people about how to do it. Mm. And it works really well for us and our clients, I think. Mm. That's interesting. Um, I have two things that kind of occurred to me. So something um, in what Christine said, do you think that part of it is, I think you talked about like the, the traditional ideas that a lawyer has responsibility for that client from A to B to C. Do you think there's some worry about lawyers 
sharing responsibility then and like liability ultimately if something goes wrong? Do you think there's hesitancy in that respect among other people and that's why they're not doing it? Or like, I'm assuming there's a high level of trust between Mm -hmm. the two of you. So maybe that's a better way of framing that question back to you. Is there a question in there, Heather? I don't know. I told you I was loopy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think so. I think that's huge. And it, it took me a long time. And, you know, I sort of talked about at the beginning, how Kelly and I shared office space and it was really in that it was close to two years before we, you know, even thought about this sort of model, but we were able to really observe how the other one worked, how they handled files, you know, the level of ethics, do we get along and how we approach files, things like that. So it was a really good trial period. Um, because I think, yes, it's, it's huge, right? It's not any different than any other firm in the sense that, you know, if one person does something, you know, kind of the firm is responsible for it and it's the same here. Um, but yeah, having that level of trust where I can say, yes, Kelly, you know, I 100% trust that you're going to do your very best and apply all your skills in this for this client every single time. That's huge. And I don't know that there's anybody else out there that I'm able to say that about. Right. So um, but yeah, it, took, it takes time to get there, I think. And it takes a lot of background work together to know if you're going to have that trust in each other or not. And I think to get the efficiencies as well. So I, th- I think trust is huge. I'm sure there are lawyers who worry about liability issues, but I don't see it as much that as your reputation and things of that nature. So, I mean, both our names are on all the pleadings that go before the court. So Christine has to trust that when I'm in court <laughs> making Uh, presentation that she's not embarrassed by something I'm going to say, you know, she trusts me implicitly that I'm going to represent us well. Um, And same thing, you know, I do a lot of the work on, let's say offers or sorting out the financial affairs of the clients. Right. So if I go put 20 hours into that and I make the tables and I present, you know, this is a skeletal offer of what it should be. Christine's able to go into mediation with those documents and she's not having to redo those 20 hours of work. She just trusts that, you know, my calculations are correct and she can work off of that document. Um, but that's a high level of trust between us. Mm -hmm. And I guess the same thing when I go in and litigate, um, you know, generally it's Christine that's done a lot of the fact finding. So I just trust that she's given me the relevant information. She's asked all the questions and there's no secret fact that's going to pop up that, you know, because I generally don't talk to the clients, especially for, you know, trial preparation I do, but for preliminary applications and things like that, um, you know, I'm drafting their affidavits based on Christine's memos, generally speaking. Mm -hmm. Um, So I just know that they're accurate and they have all the information I need in them. Right. And then they send them to the client and generally they're quite happy with them. So it does work for us, but um, I think it probably would be challenging for, you know, every lawyer on the street to go find their perfect match. Mm. So you guys have maybe a little bit of secret sauce together that uh, not everybody could, could find. But. Yeah. So, I mean, we have a story way back when, you know, this is five years ago, cause it was in our old office when we first started uh, Smith and Little. So we had been together for two years or something at that point, but um, we had a client who was, I think, going into a trial, some kind of large litigation. And I was meeting with them to prepare them to give testimony in our boardroom and uh, Christine was getting phone calls from a a lawyer on a different file who was insistent that he was going to the courthouse immediately to do some urgent application, you know, unbeknownst to us. 
And so Christine had to come into the meeting and say, you have to go, you have to, this guy's going to court. You have to go across the street and deal with this. And so I got up and left and Christine sat down at my seat with my notes and continued the preparation of this client to give this testimony. And I think it was fine from Christine's perspective. And, you know, I, I think that client was successful mm-hmm. in whatever we were doing in court with them the following day or week. So um, I think that's a hard thing for most lawyers to fathom being able to do that, right? <laughs> yeah. No, I remember that very clearly, actually. And, you know, at the end of that meeting, I gave the client the option of coming back to continue prepping. And she was like, oh, no, like, I've got it. I'm good. So, you know, like, she didn't feel like she needed to talk to Kelly any further, right? So, but yeah, that kind of handoff is probably pretty rare. <laughs> we can do that. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would well, think so. It seems like there's also a succession built in too, right? Like if something happens to one of you, then the other person is, is there, they, they've got your back. And, um, I imagine that most lawyers businesses just shut down. If something happens, they, they're ill. I mean, typically people are on disability for two to three years. So how do you keep a practice going if you're disabled? It's fascinating. Uh-huh. Well, I mean, this is interesting right now because so Christine, you're on maternity leave right now, right? I am. Yes. And then Kelly, I imagine at some point in the near future, you'll be heading to maternity leave. And so I'm assuming the plan is Christine, you're going to be coming back hopefully before that happens. (laughs) Yeah. I'm actually back on Monday. So uh, we've got a few months uh, in, in between where we're both back and then yeah, Kelly will be off having her little one. I think that's such a great example. Like that's one of the biggest challenges. I think that, uh, well, I'm not the most qualified on this podcast today to talk about, but I think that's one of the biggest challenge that female lawyers face, female lawyers that are wanting to have a family as well as a career. They face that challenge of, um, going on maternity leave and how is that going to affect their employment? So I thought that was, that seems like great for that kind of situation where you both are working and you both want to have families and because of your model, it's, I don't want to say painless because I'm sure there's like Kelly, you, you've had to just shoulder the load alone from, from two lawyers to one. So I'm sure that's been challenging. It'll be challenging for Christine when she goes back, but yeah. more painless than like, than, than it could have otherwise been. I think that's fair. Yeah. It's not uh it's not a, a walk in the park, I guess, but at the same time, um, yeah, I'm not having to, you know, even if we were just more traditional, I guess, partners who kind of had our own clients or whatever, I would have to take over Christine's stack of files and try to figure out what the heck was going on on them. Um, but you know, I'm already, I'm right in there on all of these anyways. So it's, it's fine. I picked up on the past that lawyers are very interested to know what other lawyers are using for technology. Um, it sounds like there's a lot of information sharing going on between the two of you. Do you have a masterful piece of software that helps you organize your business? We do. Yeah, we sure do. <laughs> okay, you got this, Kelly. <laughs> uh, well, so I talked about the memos, which uh, is not really software, but... Um, this is something Christine brought from her background, I guess. Whenever we do, whenever there's a memo on the file and it's a memo that's been dictated by a lawyer, um, as opposed to, you know, our assistants receiving a telephone message or something, it goes on fluorescent colored paper. So they just stick out on the files. Um, since COVID, we've gone digital. So we now have these giant master PDF files, but um, the assistants are able to save these memos on different colors in Word or whatever. So same thing as you're scrolling through this 4,000 page file, you can quickly pick out, you know, here's the initial meeting, here's a court appearance and 
those are super helpful. And we go back to those so many times. Um, so it helps us communicate, but also, you know, when you're going back, trying to prepare for a trial or a mediation or do a big offer to settle or something, you want to easily find, you know, when did I meet with the client? I know Christine talks to them about this issue, about the Jeep and whatever, and mm. find those pieces. Um, but as for software, so we have a software, it's called ACL, Automatic or Automated, I think, Civil Litigation. This is a software company out of Toronto. And um, we are kind of their guinea pigs because... <laughs> Uh, it's a software that quite a few litigation firms use. I don't really know that a lot of family firms use it, and I think it's less common in Alberta. Um, but the idea behind the software is you enter all your files in there as far as who the parties are, who their lawyers are, et cetera. And it generates uh, two things for you. So one is correspondence. Um, so you can generate a generic letter to Evan, and it will come up with today's date, with his name and address correct and all those things. And then you can type in the body of your letter so you don't have to worry about all the formatting. Um, you can also put in your own precedent letters. So if you have standard letters for certain kinds of things that come up frequently, you can have all of those in there. So I can say, you know, send Evan that letter where I tell him what to expect at his trial. And then it will come up and I can just, they come up as Word documents. So obviously I can change the letter, add some things and that sort of thing. So I, I know that firms commonly use AC for that. Um, it also generates all of your court forms. So once you've started a court action, you can put in information about the court file number, et cetera. And then it has all the different court forms. So they will generate, they'll be correct, they'll be formatted, et cetera. Um, so they work with us when you sign up for them. And we have all of these things put in the way we like them. So with you know, the font we want and whatever. So they generate all the presence specific to your firm and that that's loaded in our software. Um, so that is, uh, I think what everybody uses ACL for. <laughs> what we use it for is they have a task list feature. So under each client, you can add tasks and you have everyone in the firm uh, in the ACL software. So the lawyers, the assistants, everyone, and you can say who's supposed to do this task and you set a deadline for it as well. Um, so I think people use this a little bit. We use it a lot of bit. So that's probably the main reason we have ACL. Um, so we've, you know, helped them troubleshoot all sorts of problems because they go, you guys have 5,000 tasks in your ACL. Everyone else has 20, right? And it's every single step we're going to take on the file uh, is in ACL. Everyone in the firm has this on their computer. Um, and so, you know, right now it's me, but generally it's Christine. She, you know, an email comes in on a file. She reads it and decides, okay, we need to write back to this person. We need to follow up a week from today, all these things. And she puts all those in ACL as tasks and assigns it to the different assistants. You know, April 7th, you're going to call this person and, and whatever. Um, and that's kind of how we manage everything. So only Christine and I are allowed in our office to take tasks off or mark them as completed. And that's how we sort of stay on top of you know, making sure everything's happening. Um, but we also use it to talk to each other. So uh, generally, I, I kind of say I work for Christine. She tells me what to do. <laughs> so she'll put the tasks in for me. And that's because she's she's really doing all of the in and out of the office, you know, the emails that come in, et cetera, um, usually most of the time. Um, so, you know, she then decides, okay, this is something that is a longer letter to answer. It's going to take an hour. You know, Kelly can do this and she'll put it on for me to do and that sort of thing. And then she'll do the quick ones usually herself. Um, but you know, that changes from week to week and month to month and that sort of thing. But, um, yes. So ACL is the answer and basically it's a giant task list. And there are other softwares that do this sort of thing. Um, one thing that we've been very, very cautious of is 
software with data in Canada, and that's very hard to find. Um, so that's why we like ACL. It's like I said, it's out of Toronto, but it's actually all the data is stored on our own computers. So it's not on the cloud at all. And um, lots of those other ones that you can pay a monthly subscription, that sort of thing, they're US based, uh, which makes us nervous. So uh, we feel that we haven't had a lot of guidance necessarily from the law society about this data issue as much as we've asked questions. Oh, um, but best yeah, practice. There's yeah. zero guidance. Yes. Zero guidance. So there is a document that Christine found out of BC, the British Columbia Law Society, that gives guidance on this yeah, sort I've of seen, data I've stuff. Seen that document too, yeah. Yeah. So we've always just made sure that all of our data is in Canada, even though it's been very painful and challenging to do that. Um, but the way ACL works is uh, you pay for each file you open. So you negotiate that when you buy the software, I guess. Um, and then we have like a minimum per year that we have to spend. And if we don't, we pay the difference, but it's well worth it to us. Yeah. So I've used ACL in the past. I didn't even know they had a task list. That's so funny. <laughs> um, I've always used different tools for that. Uh, some other time I should tell you guys about what I'm using right now. I think, I think you might like it, but um, yeah. So, so um why? I, I have a question for Kelly before we move on topics. And can I interrupt? Yeah, you can. For our listeners, Kelly, why is it important to you to have your your data in Canada as opposed to in or going through the U.S.? Or is that what ah. you were going to say, Evan? <laughs> that is a Christine question. Oh, is that I just question? I just do what I'm okay. told and find technology companies in well, Canada. <laughs> every every ship needs a captain. Yes. I guess, so yes. <laughs> so I here's the thing. I'm very ethical. I think I'm. I'm extremely ethical but christine's got me beat by about three times on that one so um christine is is the person who's who's gonna do everything by the book all the time which is an excellent quality and keeps us on the straight and narrow <laughs> yeah i mean i guess it's just you know once it goes off to never never land i don't like to be the person telling our clients you know please email me all of your tax returns and your bank statements and you know maybe your birth certificate your marriage certificate you know all the things that we need information for in order to handle your file and by the way i don't know where it's going i can't say that it's being safe i feel better saying you know send me all this information here's where it's stored, you know, there, it's still not 100% protected. I can't promise it's not going to be hacked or anything like that, but I can tell you I've done my best to protect your privilege in communicating with your lawyer, because I think that, you know, solicitor client privilege is of utmost importance. And I'm going to do everything in my power always to make sure that I'm doing everything I can so that our clients feel comfortable sharing all of their information with us. So I guess that's kind of the, the key there. Um, and it's just, yeah, that big question mark of if it goes off through the US or through Lord knows where and winds up in whose hands and, you know, identity thieves and people trying to, you know, steal from solicitors trust accounts happens all the time and things like that. So I just want to be as prudent as possible with our clients' information. Okay, thanks. That makes sense. Thanks for that explanation. Okay, Evan, back to you. That was my, that was my question, Heather. Oh. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. Um, I was also going to ask, I think it's kind of, it's related, like, why not in the cloud? I mean, I guess it is the cloud, like, you know, we say, we talk about the cloud as if it's like a thing. The cloud is just servers physically located somewhere. Yeah. So, if, um, so we're not anti-cloud. I don't love the cloud. Um, 
we're not anti-cloud if the cloud is in Canada, <laughs> is the answer. So we do use another software called Sync, S-Y-N-C.com. It's another uh, software company out of Toronto. And that's what we use to basically share our files within the office. So all of our, you know, Word documents, et cetera. Um, I like them because they're out of Toronto. Their servers are in Toronto. Their redundancy servers in Mississauga. And all the other copies of the data is on the devices we own. Well, isn't so, that a little worrying, though? Because their redundancy server is basically in the same city, like Mississauga. Well, it also does. Well, not quite. But yes, I guess in some catastrophic event, both Mississauga and Toronto could go out. Um, but it also downloads a local copy of all of the data onto every machine you have it installed on. So we've got like 10 computers right. in the office, right? right? So, and then we also run external backups, <laughs> right. which I have on yeah. desks that get unplugged every night. So um, I think we have more backups than anybody I know, <laughs> and I hope to never use them. Yeah, so there you go. Even That's if Mississauga and Toronto both go down, you've got all your local machines and your external backups, and the chances of all of those things happening at the same time are low enough that you're comfortable with. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so billing model. This is what I'm curious about. So um, I think earlier in this conversation, we were talking about how the two-for-one kind of can work um, and is palatable to clients. So how do you bill clients for getting two um, excellent <laughs> lawyers at once? Yes. So we have put a lot of thought into how to do that best and what's really fair for the clients and for us too. Right. So, uh -huh. um, at the end of the day, we sort of landed on this subscription model whereby every client who comes in the door, you're going to want to talk to Kelly and Christine. You're going to want us to talk to the opposing counsel. Um, like there are certain things that you have to do to manage a file, um, including things like legal research and Kelly and I talking about your file. So we put all of that into, you know, that base three month fee. So, um, the subscription isn't on a monthly basis or an annual basis. It's every three months. And that base fee covers those basic services that every client needs, no matter what your matter is about. And then on top of that, we have, we call them a la carte uh, fees. So those are things like some clients are probably going to, or, you know, most clients will need some extras, but we don't always know exactly what those extras are from the outset. And they're different for different clients. So, um, you know, if you want to have say a half day mediation, we do that on a flat fee on top of the base fee. Or, you know, if you want to have a one day hearing, uh, we have those fees set out separately as well. So unfortunately, I'm still not in a position where I can ever tell somebody, you know, for sure, this is what your divorce will cost. Mm -hmm. But I can tell them things like, you know, if we work with you for six or nine months and we do, you know, the standard things on a file, A, B, C, D, here are your fees. If you're outside that, you know, you want to have a two-year long battle that winds up in a three-week trial, I can give you that number up front. It's a scary big number and let's try and avoid that, but I can tell you what those numbers are. Right. Uh, so we've put a lot of effort into that fee sheet. And on that sheet, there's nothing like literally every single thing that we can think of all the way from the beginning to the court of appeal. Our fees are on there. They're listed. It's not a secret. If somebody wants to go to court for, you know, a chamber's application on child support, I can give you exactly what those numbers are going to be that we're going to charge. And you don't have to worry, you know, is that application going to take Kelly 10 minutes or 10 hours? It doesn't matter to you. This is your fee. So it builds in that certainty 
uh, for the client. And then they can decide, is that fee worth it? You know, they can say things like, you know, I want an extra $50 in child support a month for the next year. Is that worth what the chamber's fee is going to be to me? Right. And it gives them very real numbers to work with for their own budgets. Um, okay. I have a few questions in there. So, um, you were saying, it, you, so it's every three months. So the client gets billed a certain amount. What if the other side is stalling? I mean, like, and these are probably the things that you get us all the time, right? Like Absolutely. I'm moving the file along. I'm doing everything I can, but the other side just won't give me dates. They won't return my phone calls or they've been mm -hmm. in Bermuda for a month out of, out of the three. <laughs> so how yeah. does that fit into the model or is that just sort of built into the system that it's going to take three months to get to X stage of a file? Yeah. And that's why we don't feel like it's fair to bill it every month, right? Because we know, you know, during the summer or over Christmas break, lawyers are going to go away. It's not always easy to have the speediest communication. Yeah, absolutely. You have other non-responsive opposing parties or whatever the case may be, right? But, you know, generally in a three-month period, if our clients are giving us instruction to move it forward, we can. There are things that we can do. We're happy to take those steps um, in that three-month period. If we can't, we're certainly aware of our regulations. And we always go back and we review, have we done enough work to justify our fees? Um, should we be offering some sort of courtesy discount or how does that work? Right. So um, we always bill that three month period at the end. And we look back and make sure that we've done enough work to justify our fees uh, in order to bill that and move forward. If there's nothing happening and your file isn't active because maybe we're waiting for, you know, a divorce judgment to come back or something like that, and we're really doing nothing um, or other than a couple communications, then we call that an inactive billing period. And we still issue a bill telling you we're not billing you for the last three months, but, you know, here you go. Uh -huh. Just so you know, we're in the next three months now. Uh -huh. um, and we let them know, right? Like if this is all we're, we're doing, we're just waiting for that judgment and then we'll get your certificate. We'll call it a day, right? Uh -huh. So people always know if they're active or not I think it's a pretty first statement about okay. um where we're at there yeah oh, interesting so I think that the other thing I would say is we're very active lawyers as far as pushing things forward. Um, I mentioned that before, Christine, I can't stand files that go around in circles and go nowhere. So um, absolutely, there's lawyers who don't want to return your calls or give you dates, but we don't really take that for an answer. Um, <laughs> I think we drive people crazy until they answer us or we just go to court and make them answer us, right? So um I think our fee model works particularly well with our style of practice as well, right? We, oh. we don't like to sit back and wait for something to happen. Um, sometimes that's to the client's benefit to sit back and then we'll talk to them about it. And if that's the case, uh, then their file is probably inactive and we say, okay, right. I'll sit on this for six months. You're not going to have any fees. And, you know, if they do something, then you're going to be active again and then you're going to have fees. <laughs> so right. that's kind of how we work around that. Oh. It's very interesting. Do you track your own time um, for whatever purposes, metrics or um, <laughs> productivity, that kind of thing? Uh, no, <laughs> we don't. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we sort of have like a ballpark. I mean, we know generally how much time we're spending on things. Uh -huh. um, and Kelly's really good at, you know, recalling how many hours she spent on an affidavit and things like that. Like it's uncanny. I don't know other people. I can't do that. Um, but she will tell me this is how long you spent drafting that agreement or whatever. Like she just knows those things. 
Um, but that was one other part of this too, is, you know, in our office, we really pride ourselves on trying to be as efficient as possible. And part of this billing model is we don't have to track our time. We don't have to pay somebody to be entering timesheets. We don't have to have our own timesheets. And it has saved piles of time in our office on the admin side uh, by not tracking that. So we do track um, everything we do, but not by time. Right. So um, if I go to chambers, you know, I have a timesheet, which isn't really a timesheet, uh, where I write that down. Um, and then every time we send and receive communications, uh, we write those down. And the reason for that is within those three months, the, the three month base fee, you know, includes all the standard things that most clients would need. But there is a cap um, because, you know, there's clients who want to email you 10 times a day and they can do that, but there's charges for overages. So the cap is designed to be, you know, reasonable for what a reasonable normal client would need. If somebody has a super complicated matter, you know, sometimes you have these matters where there's five lawyers on the file and you're getting all sorts of messages all the time. I mean, it makes sense that we have to bill more to those people. Um, or if clients are unreasonable and want to talk to us all the time, same thing. Um, so we do track them in that way. We don't type them into a database or spend the time doing that data entry. Um, what we do is when I run the bills at the end of three months, I kind of know which files are really, really active. And then I go back and just count, <laughs> are they over the, the limit or not? And if they're over, I put the overage fee on the bill. It's super easy. Huh. I already told Christine this, but I think you guys should track your time. I know. <laughs> like it's yeah, a, it's a useful metric for you for the, the business side of things. But, you know, at the same time, then you would lose that benefit that you just described of we don't have to enter our time. <laughs> exactly. And I think it's really hard because the other thing, too, is we really want to get out of that mindset of, you know, our value is how much time we spent on things. Uh-huh. And I think to get out of that mindset, you have to stop thinking about, you know, this took me this many hours and think about what is the benefit here to our client. And that's how we've really tried to make our fee sheet is, you know, what is the value to this client and having a really well-drafted separation agreement and base our fees on that and not, you know, Christine spent seven hours on it and Kelly's going to spend another three hours on it or whatever it is. Right. So um, you know, while I appreciate having the metrics and understanding, you know, really how much are we ending up billing clients and how many hours did that take us and stuff? Um, I think it's too hard to get out of that mindset if we're constantly focused on the billable hour still, even though we're not billing on it. So why is the billable hour? I like the, the question that's in our sheet here. Why is the billable hour billing model terrible? <laughs> oh, so many reasons. This is a Kelly question though. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I think it's very unpredictable for clients, which means they can't budget. Um, we think it's very disingenuous and, and lawyers probably don't mean it that way, but you call a lawyer and say, okay, um, you know, how much do you charge? What's my divorce going to cost? And they say, well, $400 an hour, please give me a $2,000 retainer. Well, the thing with family law is the the clients are not sophisticated consumers of legal services. Um, it's not something they deal with every day, like a business client. So that has no meaning to them. <laughs> well, $400 an hour, how many hours is it going to take you to do this? I don't know. Uh, what, you know, so the fees, $2,000. Well, no, um, you know, when a lawyer quotes a retainer, it actually, I like to say is 100% meaningless. <laughs> it means nothing at all. Right. Some lawyers might ask for retainers that they expect to cover, you know, the whole file. Some might, 
just want to cover the first month of work. Some might want to just have a low retainer to entice people through the door. Um, you know, it, it's very hard to educate the public on that, but that, that retainer number really has nothing to do with anything. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of a challenge. Um, but I think our fundamental problem with the billable hour is, you know, it promotes inefficiency on the part of the lawyer too. So the lawyer is going to make more money off of you if they can stretch something out for 10 hours that should take five or whatever, right? Whereas our system, you know, if I can do something more efficiently, then I can have more clients and, you know, we can make more money in that way, which I think is, is fair to everyone. Um, but obviously, you know, we have a certain quality of work that we want to maintain. And I can tell you, Christine, I spend tons of time on everything we do. Um, but we want to have that high quality work and fees that are fair. So, um, you know, we've, I've talked to some clients about maybe what our flat fee is for a chamber's appearance. And I explained to them, you know, if somebody really puts a gun to our head and asks us what our hourly rate is, you know, we have a number that we'll give out. <laughs> our chamber's fee is the equivalent of about two of those hours. And what I'm doing for that fee is I'm preparing to go there. I'm going to court no matter how long it takes, which is usually not two hours, right? It's usually more. Um, and then I'm doing a memo from that. I'm doing the order that results from that usually because I always volunteer to draft the orders. Um, so all of those pieces, you know, you'd be hard pressed to do that in two hours. Sometimes you might for a very simple application or if you're the first matter on the list, yeah, be in and out, but you know, often you're there for four hours. Um, the other piece is, you know, if I've got two or three clients who need a chambers application and I could go there on one day and do three of them, I think when you're billing hourly, you struggle with, okay, I've been here for four hours. Can I charge all three clients four hours each? Do I have to divide four hours by three clients? Like, how do you bill that? And what's fair um, with our system? It's like, well, no, this is the price I went. I was prepared. I urged your application. You're each going to pay that price, right? Um, I think the other pieces, and this is, goes to what Christine was talking about. We are giving you our experience and the value of our, our knowledge and experience and education. And it's a very interesting commodity to price, right? So we had a client once who had a very difficult problem <laughs> and a court date scheduled. And I came in and obviously we had to put some work into it as far as Christine met with this person for a couple hours and all this sort of thing. But I went into the court appearance. It took me 10 minutes and I made her problem go away. <laughs> And it's like, what is the value of that? Uh, it's certainly not 10 minutes times, I don't know, $300, $400, $500 an hour. Mm -hmm. It's got a much higher value than that. And are you paying me for the 10 minutes I went to court? No, you're paying me for the 10 years of experience, the eight years of education and my skill. Yeah. Because I knew the judge that was sitting. I knew how they thought about things and I knew exactly what to say. Yeah. And had you gone in by yourself, <laughs> you would not have been out in 10 minutes. You wouldn't have gotten the result. So I think the billable hour just doesn't capture that at all, right? You're able to pick up the file and identify the issue easily and all of those things, right? In a, in a quick way. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I, I, love, I love hearing it because, you know, we did, I think one of our first three episodes or something was me talking about the um, set fee billing, right? And so it's like all this similar kind of things and uh, it reminds me of the story. I don't know if this story is true or what, or even where I heard it, but there's, as the story goes, this lady sees Van Gogh sitting in a cafe, cafe and asks him to draw something for her. And he draws her something on a napkin and takes him like a few minutes and he charges her, you know, I don't know, thousands of dollars. And she's like, you're charging me thousands of dollars for something that took you like 
five minutes to draw and he's, and his answer is no, I'm charging you thousands of dollars for something that's taken me my entire life to draw. And, yeah. you know, that might be like overstating it a little bit. Like our entire life has been leading up to this moment on this file might be a little dramatic, but, and the point's still the same, right? Kelly, I mean, that's what you're saying is yeah, 10 minutes, but that doesn't charging, um, you know, point six. <laughs> of an hour or whatever it is for that 10 minutes or point point nine of an hour is not cap properly capturing the value that you delivered there. Correct. Yeah. And I mean, that's the, an extreme example of it, but yeah. um, yeah. And it's, it's hard. It's hard because as I say, the clients of family law, you know, they don't generally go use a whole bunch of different family lawyers. They don't know how to compare them. They don't, you know, they just come in and it's like, I'm getting what I'm getting. And it's, it's hard for them to recognize the value there, but. Um, I, I got to dumb this down for a second for, for our audience, um, because we'll probably have lawyers listening to this and very interested, but we'll probably <laughs> also have people maybe looking to divorce and trying to figure out how are these people, how, like, why are so many people priced differently? So tell me if I'm, I'm on the right track here. So if we use Heather as our example for billable hours, Evan for fixed and you guys for subscription is heather the only one taking a retainer in this scenario here uh, no <laughs> <laughs> we definitely take a retainer so um i probably take the smallest retainer out of everyone here to be honest but we can talk about that in a minute yeah that's more of a function of heather being a generous soul <laughs> yeah so a retainer is generally money that we ask for upfront and we hold it in trust it belongs to the client until we do work issue a bill and pay ourselves out of the money so it's kind of a special power that lawyers have <laughs> where we can say other you know unlike your auto mechanic i can get your money up front and have security that i'm going to be paid so that's what a retainer is um christine and i absolutely do not work without a retainer in place um and that's just a business practice as far as we don't want to be chasing receivables and that's kind of um i guess a choice that individual lawyers can make um i think we just take the perspective that we are very much into being upfront and honest with clients about what their matter is going to cost and the absolute worst thing is to give us $5,000. We do a bunch of work, bill you your $5,000. That's all the money you had because you didn't realize it was going to cost more than that. Um, and now that $5,000 is kind of useless because I'm very educated on your file, but you can't afford to pay me to continue the file, for example, right? Um, so that's why we try to, we while we give these prices up front uh, with our fee sheet, it's very upfront and honest. Um, but we also try to ask for a big enough retainer to be realistic with people. So I know Christine talked to someone not that long ago who was shocked when I think she asked for a $10,000 retainer, but the bottom line was, this is a really complicated matter. And if you want me to do it, I'm happy to do it, but it's going to cost more than $10,000. And I want to be honest with you about that. So I don't know if you can talk more to that, Christine. Yeah, I think that's one of the challenges I have is kind of that sticker shock, right? And, uh, you know, this particular client told me on the phone, you know, well, there's other lawyers that have said they only want, you know, a two or $3,000 retainer. And I go, great, but you just told me, A, there's a bunch of urgent work I have to do. I have to drop all our other clients to start working on this. Uh, B, you've now told me about, I think it was two or three different court applications in different court <laughs> jurisdictions. <laughs> C, uh, I'm taking this file over from another lawyer. 
so I already have to, you know, get that file, get up to speed. I'm not starting from scratch. So I'm going to have to go back and probably figure out what's going on already. You know, this isn't a fresh file, right? So all, already there, there's a complicated matter. Plus just from talking to this gentleman, I could tell, you know, you're going to be a bit challenging, right? Like, I don't know that you're going to fit into our regular model of, you know, this is a reasonable number of correspondences per three months, right? So just all of those things combined, I said, you know, this is going to be much more expensive than what you're thinking, just so you're aware, right? And, you know, sure, you can go find somebody, uh, you know, that two or $3,000 retainer, and it's going to be gone in a day or two. I can tell you that right now, like just reviewing the file and getting up to speed is going to cost more than that with a, on a billable hour, even if you find, you know, a more junior lawyer who's only charging 200 or 250 an hour, that's going to be gone. And it's really hard to have that conversation with people. Um, but that's what it is, right? It's trying to be very honest about where we're at and doing my best to estimate the next steps on your matter and how quickly we need that retainer. Somebody else coming to us who says, you know, I've got a kitchen table agreement, you know, we're not in any real rush, blah, blah, blah. You know, I can work with you to adjust your fees so that you can, uh, you know, budget accordingly this, that, and the other. But somebody coming and saying, you know, I have court in two days from now and you need to drop everything to do this is a very different scenario uh, than those quote unquote, easier files where you have a reasonable period of time to work with them. You can uh, take your time to get your ducks in a row and, and things like that. And those are the ones that end up costing much, much less, obviously. Yeah, I have that conversation too. I, I try to I try to prepare people. Um, so yeah, Kim, I take a retainer as well, for sure. It's just related to my scope of work. So um, I really like Christina and Kelly's model and I'm trying to switch to it. The main difference between our model is they don't bill by the hour at all uh maybe not quite at all but like 99 percent of, of what they do they don't bill by the hour um it's covered by the subscription fee and then set fees over top of that i do set fee but i also do by the hour for certain things like ongoing negotiation all the stuff they cover with um subscription well not everything they cover with subscription but everything that i bill by the hour they cover with their subscription part of their model so i think it's better and it's better for cost certainty as well um, but I have the same conversations with the clients where, you know, I try to tell them set fee doesn't mean that it's cheaper necessarily. I mean, it might be, it could very well be end up being cheaper, but it means that I'm committing to the fees and it means that you're going to have cost certainty, not for the entire life of your file, but at least until the next step of, of where we can see we need to go. And I'd much rather them have the sticker shock up front and then make the decision of what they want to do. And some people decide, after they get that sticker shock, no, I'm going to go with that guy who quoted me $2,000 retainer. And that's fine. But other people, you know, they, they see that what it's going to cost. It's a reality check for them. And then they decide, you know, they still want to go ahead. But it's that how much is cost certainty worth to you? Do you want to start throwing money down what's potentially a black hole and not have any idea where it's headed? Or do you want to at least have some idea? The thing about knowing about how much your fees are going to cost beforehand is it allows you, it gives you the opportunity to control that spending. Uh -huh. Because just like Christine said about like people working with her, I mean, I also offer legal coaching and limited scope arrangements. And so I give people that opportunity, like here's what's going to cost if you want me to represent you to go do a court here. If you want to save money on that, you want to do it much more affordably. I'm happy to coach you through that and do a lot less of the work for you. And you do a lot more of the work and that'll save you money. And, and, I give the same warning 
as well about like the last thing I want to have happen is what Kelly describes. That's the worst feeling ever when your clients run out of money and they're halfway through litigation. Yeah. That's, that's terrible. It's like, like uh, lawyers don't feel good about that situation and clients feel terrible and they feel lost and helpless. So I, that's the nice thing about providing some cost certainty beforehand is that hopefully it, it, they, it helps them make the choices about managing those legal fees as opposed to if it's billable hour, they can just keep calling and not even realize they just spent $5,000 until they get the bill. Yes. I think it's also what's important about asking for appropriate retainers that are big enough. And that's especially, you know, when you're getting closer to a trial date or something, um, it's hard for Christine to tell people I need $60,000 in the next 60 days. I mean, we try to get more advanced notice than that, but the reality is if you can't come up with that money, I'm not going to be able to complete this trial for you. And, you know, dropping someone half with your trial is a real problem. So we don't ever want to be in that position. Right. And it's better to be upfront and say, this is where you're at. Um, this is what it's going to cost. You know, is that something that works for you or not? And give them that choice. But yeah, like a, a lawyer doing a trial on a billable hour. Um, it's the time you're in the courtroom, which is probably a seven hour day or something. It's not actually that lengthy, but it's, you know, being in the office at 6 a.m. every morning, prepping for that day, and then being there when the trial is done in your office till seven or eight at night. It's exhausting, but it's also the two, three, 400 hours of prep. Uh -huh. And I think, you know, an hourly rate, clients don't understand it takes 400 hours to prep for a trial. Um, you know, in our fees, there's a trial prep fee and it is what it is. And um, it's kind of up to me to... I know that I have my reputation and I want to present a trial to a certain standard and I'm going to do whatever prep is required. And I don't constrain myself to those hours. Right. So um, the client doesn't need to be concerned about what I'm doing as far as how much time I'm putting into prepping, as long as they're confident that I'm going to be appropriately prepared, I guess. And, you know, dear listener, I think that most lawyers, or at least most of the lawyers that I know that work on the hourly fee model are doing what Kelly is sort of referring to anyway, is that they're doing the best job for their client and they're maybe they're recording their hours, but when they look at that and say, good golly, this took me 700 hours, they only end up charging for three. And then that's not predictable for the lawyer or for the client. And then the client's like, well, why do you charge me for some time and not other time? And I, I think in some ways it's just, it, it, it has the appearance of being a more reliable model, but it, it kind of isn't at the end of the day. Um, the other challenge I find too is a resistance sometimes for clients to want to share all of the information and spend the time that I need them to spend with me in order to get a good sense of what's going on. So um, let's sit down and go through your bank accounts and we'll talk about how they're going to get divided. Well, I don't want to go through your spreadsheet line by line, um, but then we go three steps further along and it's like, well, oh, if we'd gone through the spreadsheet line by line, then we would have figured this out. <laughs> but instead it's taking two extra hours when it would have taken 15 minutes, um, you know, three steps ago. So that's, that's a frustration too that I think works. It ends up working at counter purposes to the client's ultimate goal of resolving things quickly and efficiently. But 
Yeah, and I, I, I we have. Oh, sorry. Sorry. No, go ahead, Christine. Yeah, I was going to say I think we have the same struggles sometimes, um, but this is also like a secret benefit <laughs> for lawyers with our model is that you know clients can delay or not talk to us and things like that, but you know we have that three month ticking, right? So I tell them at the get, you want to be responsive to me. You want to be answering my questions uh, because I'm asking for a reason and I need you to trust that this is the process, right? I need you to work with me. And we have that really upfront discussion in our initial meeting. And then further to that, you know, we can like talking about this sticker shock and whatnot of the expense of things. It really helps rein people in when they come in and they're angry and they want to, you know, nail their ex to the wall, this, that, and the other. I go, great. Here's how much that costs. Let's readjust. Here's what happens if you work with me, if we have reasonable expectations, et cetera, you know, your fees are going to come way down. Your stress comes way down. This is a much better way to proceed. And nine times out of 10 people go, okay. Mm. So, you know, from that point forward, I can, you know, lean them back over to that and say, you know, I know this is a tough ask right now. You're very busy or, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, I don't know why you don't want to talk about your bank account statements with me. Cause I get it. <laughs> Heather, so many people uh, who seem to be like that. Like, I don't understand why you're getting so nitpicky. Um, but at the end of the day, it's, I need to have a thorough understanding so I can give you the best advice. And then you can feel confident that you're making decisions for your family that you're comfortable with. So it all circles back to that. And, um, I guess that's my key is trying to circle it right back to that. And, you know, that fee sheet and our discussion about communication and why it's important that we work together always. Yeah. The other piece is we lean on our staff a lot. Um, so, you know, there's lots of things that people don't need to talk to the lawyer about, but we need that information. So, you know, with our model, we have that cap on communications every three months, but that's communications Christine and I are involved in. So if my assistant calls you and can ask the question and get the information, that's free. It's not free. It's included in your base fee, right? Yeah. So Christine has that conversation with them up front, like... You know, let's work efficiently and there's no reason I need to call you to ask this question, right? So please just talk to our staff. Um, it's going to help you manage your fees and it's going to help me and Christine be a lot more efficient. And obviously that's beneficial to us being able to have more clients, um, which ultimately, you know, we want to make more money by having more clients and more satisfied clients, not by charging each individual client more money. So I think our fees are, they're not inexpensive and they're very fair. Um, but you know, we don't want to have to have astronomical fees to be able to make a living. Uh -huh. Yeah, I, I wanted to say a couple things. So I'm just gonna write down my question so I don't forget it because I want to say something before it. Um, okay, so I just wanted to echo what Heather said, like even though, you know, we've kind of uh, ragged on the billable hour here, and, and I think rightly so. I. And I mean, Kelly, you said something like how um, to the effect of the billable hour incentivizes lawyers to take longer. I think from the lawyers that I know, even though that's true, I don't see that bearing out. And I think part of the reason is they don't really care what file they're working on. They're just working. Uh -huh. <laughs> and so, and, and I think for the most part, lawyers are an ethical group. And so I think that's true. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't, and I don't think you were suggesting any otherwise. But because what I think the point is, is that a model that incentivizes a lawyer to be more efficient is just going to be a better model anyways. Like not that the lawyers that are doing the billable hour are unethical and like dragging it out like you might think your mechanic is. 
Yeah, not that mechanics do either. I don't want to write on me mechanics, <laughs> but um, I don't think that's the case, but it is definitely the case that set fee billing incentivizes efficiency, which is a win in the end for, for the client and the lawyer. I think the point is, you know, if a lawyer can only work eight hours a day of billable time before they're exhausted, um, there's a cap on how much that lawyer can ever make. You're right, whether they work on one file or 10 files or whatever it is. Um, whereas if you have value-based billing and you can work efficiently and get more efficient and have better systems, you don't have that cap on your earning capacity as a lawyer. So I think that's how it incentivizes lawyers yeah. to be more efficient. And then with the with the subscription model, those, you, you get rewarded with those efficiencies even more uh, or in the same way because your capacity for clients grows. Whereas if you're just doing the billable hour, you don't really care about the capacity as long as there's enough work. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. And my question was, the question that I wanted to not forget, how did you guys come up with the your rate for the subscription, which I don't know if we've said it yet. That's usually a Kim question. How much does this cost? Which I think, uh, can I tell people what it is? Yep. Yeah. It's $3,000 a quarter, right? 3,500. 3,500. Okay. How did you come up with that number? And, and, and yeah, tell me about it. Uh, so a bit of trial and error. <laughs> it was lower when we started, but, uh, we found we were vastly undervaluing our services. So we've raised it a couple of times. Um, we haven't yet raised our fees for inflation ever. So I think that's sadly coming. Um, but um, I think we just sort of, we looked at what we thought the average client would use as far as communications. And so I think the dirty secret is it's a little bit based on an hourly rate <laughs> at some point, right? Of, you know, how much time is going to take us to manage these clients, whatever. Um, but over time we've refined it to, you know, okay, this feels about right. This seems fair. Um, you know, when we look at overall, what did this client um, end up doing what it ended up costing. So, you know, Christine and I, part of the the partnership and we talked about, obviously we have this very close relationship, et cetera. We do a lot of business retreats. <laughs> so um, we started out every year after Christmas, we would do sort of a week of spending time together talking about our business. Um, that was never enough time. So now we've gone to semi-annually or maybe even three or four times a year. Um, usually just the December one is, or December, January is sort of a week long. The other ones are shorter. Um, but I can tell you that at least once a year, um, we look at kind of every client we've had in the year, how much their bills were. We talk about, you know, what was involved with this client? Was that a lot of work? Were they a difficult client? you know, did they have a trial, all this sort of thing. And we kind of look at what their fees were. Was that fair? Oh, that person feels like that fee was way too low. How come? So we've refined our prices over the years that way and said, oh, you know, this person really didn't pay us enough for how much work that was in the last year. Why is that? Oh, because we're not charging enough for reviewing financial disclosure was one thing that we've really increased our fees on um, because we realized how much time it takes to go through that and make property charts. And so we've added some fees around that. Um, Christine said the price list contains sort of fees for everything under the sun that we can think of. And that's kind of grown over the years. And it's because, oh, we had the one-off client who needed this strange thing. Okay, let's put a fee for that on the fee sheet <laughs> so that next time, you know, there's a fee for that sort of thing. Um, so I think that's the answer, like our trial fees, for example. Um, so back when we were solo practitioners and starting out, we did a lot of legal aid work, um, which is fine, but that's all billed hourly. 
So when we went to do our fee sheet a couple of years later, I was able to go back and go, okay, in the last two years, I've done four one-day trials on an hourly basis. I know exactly how long it takes to prep for these. <laughs> they all come to within you know, 10% as far as how long it takes to prep and have the trial and whatever. Um, so let's figure out what the fee should be, right? So that's kind of where we got our fees from. Um, our trial fees have gone up a bit over the years um, as we've gotten more experience and realized we're really good at this and we should charge more. Um, but our base fee has gone up only because we realized that it was it was too low for the amount of work we were doing. Um, and now we're at that 3,500 number, which I think probably honestly is still probably low for the amount of work we do on most files, but I think it's also fair. I don't know Christine's thought on that. Yeah, agreed. I think it's also a bit of like, you know, what the market can bear, right? And what are people prepared to pay for that? Because, you know, truthfully, uh, I think it's very low for the amount of time and energy that we spend on these files uh, for the most part. There's always the exceptions on the other side where we, you know, don't talk about them enough, but uh, well, not enough, but um, a lot less or, you know, people require a lot less effort on some things because they're just easier clients, right? Sometimes you have those people that are very responsive and they, you know, answer your 30 questions about their disclosure in that one email and there's no follow-ups and things. And <laughs> that's very smooth and awesome. But for the most part, there's, there's a lot of work that goes into that base fee for sure. <laughs> so what I'm hearing is you guys are not charging enough, which means people should be flocking to you. Like they're getting a crazy deal. That so is fair. <laughs> I hope, I hope people listening to this are really taking that away here is that, uh, and you know, I think that's, that's one of the results of being a pioneer of a billing model is that, um, you, I think lawyers, my experience, lawyers tend to be very cautious about how much they're charging, especially when they're switching to a new billing model. And so, um, and you guys are doing the same thing here, which is probably being a little bit too generous, uh, for the client, but that means right now is a great time because they're getting a lot of value for, for what they're spending with you guys. I think that's true. I think it's, it's hard because of, as Christine was saying, that sticker shock piece, right? So, you know, it's very hard for Christine to tell somebody this is going to be $60,000. That's a huge number, but they don't realize, you know, you go to this guy who's $500 an hour and it's going to be 120 really fast. Yeah. We know that as lawyers, but the average, you know, retail consumer doesn't know that. Yeah. So. Yeah. I think there's a big application, uh, a bigger application towards subscription pricing on divorce in in how the financial services could interact more with the legal side of things. Like there is a home buyer's plan withdrawal from RSPs where you can borrow money and pay it back over a certain period of time. And a lot of times people are using that money to buy secondary residential properties to try and make money. But like, why is there no like divorce buyer's plan withdrawal where financial professionals can monitor these payments and say, yeah, this makes a whole pile of sense to pay your 77 bucks a month for 15 years to pay back this loan to get your divorce, you know, started, done and working properly. Like, why are we not... I think maybe it has to do a bit with the unknown costs of divorce and like, you can't make that application to the CRA, but what, like what I'm hearing from you guys, like I'm thinking maybe this is a smarter way and everybody should be shifting this way. Yeah. So we've, uh, Christine and I like to be pioneers of all things, right? So we've actually spent a lot of, uh, 
effort and, and brain power trying to figure out um, how to finance people's divorces, actually. So I had a lot of chats with um, sort of consumer finance companies and stuff because, you know, sometimes you have a lot of people that have equity tied up in their home, but they don't have $70,000 to pay me to fight about it, you know? Um, and the response I got back, I talked to them, some of these companies who, you know, offer let's say Leon's credit card or something. Right. And I said, why can't I have a Smith and little credit card? Uh, you know, no interest for 12 months or something. So my clients can pay me. And they said, Oh, well, there's no uh, collateral to secure against. So I said, really, you're going to go repossess someone's year old couch, couch <laughs> to pay off this $5,000, you know, furniture credit card. Like that really can't be the answer. And then I didn't uh -huh. get any further response when I brought up that point. <laughs> so um, if someone can figure out a way um, I think that's a brilliant idea and it's, it's something that's in the back of our bag of ideas. Cause as I said, Christine and I have about 8,000 ideas that we talk about from time to time at these retreats and try to figure out how to make them happen. But I think that is a real problem financing, mm -hmm. financing your divorce lawyer mm -hmm. and it is an important investment. One other thing you guys mentioned and that I thought of Kim immediately was uh, financial disclosure piece. And Kim and I haven't worked on this. We, we did one, we had one client together and then I was like, Oh, we need to talk about this. And then we've never talked about it. So Kim, it, as I mentioned at the beginning, she is a financial advisor and insurance advisor with Raymond James limited, but she is also, what is it? What is it called? Collaborative. What is it, Kim? Yeah, it's a collaborative professional. So it's basically, it allows financial people to get involved in the divorce, maybe hopefully speed things up um, and get things like, you know, take the liability away from the lawyers and trying to figure out the numbers. Yeah, so the, the point is, Kim and people like Kim, and there's not enough of them, honestly, that no. are aware of this type of work, can do things like compile the financial to gather, work with the client to gather and compile the financial disclosure into whatever it is, the format that you want it to be in that will allow you as a lawyer to evaluate the financials without having to do all the busy work of gathering it and putting it into a nice package. Um, and, and Kim for that charges by the hour. And what was it, Kim? Yeah, we charge 150 bucks an hour at my firm. We're, we're probably one of the only ones that actually has a fee. Like Raymond James does very little of this work, but because I'm involved, we have this fee schedule. The, the other banks are probably not involved in this at all. Like probably there's nobody who does this. So it's, yeah, we're, it's weird because we are a fee for service business for the most part on the investments, but we're, we're billing by the hour in this type of work, which is, I don't know, it's all like, it's all just a mishmash. It just seems like, yeah, everyone's all over the place trying to figure out how to charge for this kind of work. But I, I do think if people use financial planners more, we would advocate for lawyers pricing more. We would say, yes, you can afford this. You stop, you know, stop your Netflix and your Disney subscription for, for a few years and you can pay this and this will be a better use of your money, right? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's it's to look at. it's challenging um, pricing this financial disclosure, I guess, packages and review because it's so different from file to file. So, 
you have people who have one credit card, one bank account, one house, yeah. that's pretty easy. And then you have people who have four corporations and five vacation properties and mm-hmm. really, really complicated stuff. So uh, the way we've dealt with that is we have two different fees, one for simple disclosure and one for what we call complex disclosure. Um, it's defined in our fee sheet. So we're big on sort of definitions and being very clear. Um, but we define, you know, what is complex disclosure and it's still probably not enough money, but it is a higher fee. Um, But then of course, these people who are really complicated, uh, we usually or often end up getting accountants involved, um, you know, giving us business valuations and things like that, because obviously Christine and I are not accountants and we're not business valuators. (laughs) But um, financial planners, you know, are very useful to a lot of clients too, who have to figure out what their life is going to look like after divorce, right? So um, oftentimes people who are going to receive spousal support, they're not sure how much to ask for. Um, Obviously we give them advice from the legal side, but we often say, you know, go talk to your financial advisor and figure out what does your budget look like? You know, if we get this outcome for you, are you going to be able to live on this? Does that make sense? Um, You know, the other piece that's complex is sometimes we can do a lump sum of spousal support, right? Well, we always say, I don't know if that makes sense for you or not. <laughs> Go talk to your financial advisor, right? I'm not going to tell you, you know, are you better off to have this lump sum or have a monthly income stream? That's way outside our wheelhouse. Yeah. Well, this has been very interesting today. Subscri- I didn't even know subscription was a thing. This is great. People are going to be into this. Does anybody in Edmonton do subscription or is this, are you guys like complete pioneers in this, in this industry? Well, uh, we invented our fee list, you know, whether anybody kind of had the same idea or has copied us, I don't know. Uh, I can say we definitely do Edmonton work though. So uh, we will do work all over the province and, you know, feel free to call us whether you're in Edmonton or not. Yeah. These are the same. I don't Uh, think anybody does yet, Kim, but I'm, I I feel like I should be doing it. So (laughs) I'm convinced it's, I'm convinced it's, the best model I've heard of yet for, for legal fees. So I want to do it. I just need to get my button gear. And I've started since, since talking to Christine a couple months ago, I've started uh, doing my own firm price list because before I've had to do a lot of kind of one on one off evaluations of oh, what I should be charging for the set fee. Although I have some guidelines, but they've convinced me, no, you just have a, just have a price list. So I've been working on that. So thanks for that, you guys. You're welcome. You know what? The other thing is it makes billing your clients super easy. Mm. Yeah. So I've got the quick codes all coded in and it's like morning chambers. The the description comes up, the fee comes up, done. Beautiful. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, Heather, any, well, actually first Kelly and Christine, is there anything else you want to talk about that uh, we haven't covered? I mean, I guess uh, just very briefly, you know, we've had these discussions about different fees and things like that. And I think obviously that's a primary consideration for people when they're choosing a lawyer, but I just wanted to touch on, you know, that's not the only thing. And that's maybe not even the most important thing for people. 
Mm-hmm. Um, especially in family law, you really have to, you know, try and choose somebody you're comfortable with, have those upfront conversations at the beginning, you know, and of course, fee model is part of that. How do you bill? What kind of retainers you charge? How often are you going to charge me? Do you accept credit cards, e-transfers? Those are important, but it's also important that you're able to talk about that, talk about your expectations for communication, uh, things like that, because if you go into a relationship with a family law lawyer and you're mismatched on how quickly you can expect a response or, you know, are you expecting somebody to be very aggressive in the sense of bringing court applications all the time? Or do you want somebody, uh, you know, who's not at all prepared to go to court ever and, you know, is a collaborative lawyer or whatever? You have to think about the kind of lawyer that you want as well as what your budget and the fees look like. So I'll just make that plug out there too, that uh, there's some important, important other considerations and not just the fees when you're thinking about divorce lawyers or other lawyers at all. Yeah, that's such a good point because we have focused so hard on the fees as if that's like the only thing. And sometimes people may think that that's the only thing that matters, like how much it's going to cost. But that's just, yeah, well said, I would say. Yeah, there's that old uh, adage of cheap and fast and good, right? Pick two, is that that what it is, right? Like there's those other, there are other considerations um, when making that choice. Final thoughts from me are... Um, you know, if, if you're talking to a lawyer about a retainer, you should clarify if that's an estimate of the total cost, or if that's just a deposit that you're putting on the file. Cause I think that that is something that is really misunderstood. And I'm really glad that Kim asked about that. Um, because yeah, going to Christine and hearing $60,000 and going to someone else and hearing two, obviously one of them sounds a lot better than the other, but um, <laughs> that person may be up for a, a surprise in the end. So yeah, really interesting conversation though. Thank you so much both for coming in and sharing um, all of these fantastic ideas that you're implementing with us. Thank you for having us. Kim, any last thoughts? No, I think, I mean, all of you come across as so unbelievably competent and and intelligent. And I just think people are so lucky that lawyers will come together on a podcast um, in a non-competitive setting, just saying, hey, here's what we're all about. Here's, you know, we're all trying to do the right thing here. Um, I I just, I appreciate all of you so much. And and I know people who listen to this podcast do as well. Thanks, Kim. <laughs> um, oh, just finally, uh, my closing point is that um, Kim and I are going to be neighbors in a couple of weeks. <laughs> so, yeah, all right, neighbor, moving into. I was we were living out in Spruce Grove, and we're moving into Edmonton, so I can be a little closer to the office. And the place that we're moving into is like uh, a block or so away from Kim. And I can prank your house by leaving little ugly gnomes on your property and all this all this stuff. I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> Kelly and I have also handled some neighbor disputes. So <laughs> <laughs> that is true. <laughs> I'll know who to call. I'll be like, things are real tense between Evan and Kim right now. <laughs> yeah. Those ones can heat up real fast, guys. <laughs> yeah, let's let's book this. Let's revisit this neighbor <laughs> litigation in two months from now. I think yeah. people would be, I know a lot of people who actually hate their neighbors. This actually could be a really interesting podcast we could have you guys back on yeah, yeah we'd be happy to Wait, can, we, can we each retain one of you so like I would <laughs> and, and, 
<laughs> For now, I'll just say, Kim, keep your gnomes to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, everybody. And uh, thanks for listening or watching. If you have any questions, you can email them to us. The, the email address is access to justice podcast at gmail.com. And we'll do our best to get you an answer. And um, thanks again, Christine and Kelly. And we'll see everyone next time. Bye. Any information in this video is general information only and is not, nor is it intended to be, legal advice. Watching this video does not create a lawyer-client relationship. You should always seek the advice of a lawyer or other qualified professional for advice regarding your individual situation. While we take care to ensure that the information contained in this video is accurate and up-to-date, we make no warranties or representations as to the suitability, completeness, or accuracy of the information contained in this video. Any reliance you place on the information is at your own risk. Kahane Law Office, Merrick Law, Heather Malarick Professional Corporation, Evan Clark Professional Corporation, Evan Clark, Heather Malarick, and any guests will not be responsible nor liable in any way for any content, including but not limited to any errors or omissions in the content, or for any loss or damage of any kind incurred as a result of any content communicated in this video, whether by Evan Clark, Heather Malarick, or by a third party. Kim McDonald is a financial advisor with Raymond James Limited. Information provided is not a solicitation, and although obtained from sources considered reliable, is not guaranteed. The view and opinions contained in this media are those of Kim McDonald, not Raymond James Limited. Securities-related products and services are offered through Raymond James Limited, member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Insurance products and services are offered through Raymond James Financial Planning Limited, which is not a member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Raymond James advisors are not tax advisors, and we recommend that clients seek independent advice from a professional advisor on tax-related matters. Insurance products and services are offered through Raymond James Financial Planning Limited, RJFE, a subsidiary of Raymond James Limited, which is not a member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. When providing life insurance products, financial advisors are acting as insurance representatives of RJFP. Darkness of the dales dissipates, declines because of he who turns.